When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I always enjoy bringing you the latest. This is The Scoop. It's The Scoop with Darren Dookie Wolfson from 5 Eyewitness News. And away we go. Scoop Podcast episode 427. On this Tuesday, the 23rd of January, the year is 2024. Conversations only since they are lengthy. I'll empty out my figurative notebook. When I join Phil Mackey and Judd Zolgad for my normal Tuesday and Thursday segments. Will Joe get the call to the hall? Joe Maurer will find out on Tuesday between 4 and 5 p.m. Central with MLB Network making the announcement at approximately 5.15. Maybe my favorite Joe Maurer note, he broke up three no-hitters in the ninth inning. Maurer was a six-time All-Star, three-time Gold Glove winner, and the 09 AL MVP during his 15 seasons with the Twins. He is the only catcher to win three batting titles. He batted 306 with 143 homers and 906 RBIs with the Twins from 04 to 2018. This podcast puts a heavy focus on Joe, but we'll chat with Gophers Athletic Director Mark Coyle as well, plus new Twins reliever Obi Harris. He signed a minor league deal, no opt-out, pitched in the majors last year with the Washington Nationals. Let's begin with Paul Molitor, Creighton Connection, St. Paul Connection, and Molly managed Joe with the Twins. Heck, Molly competed against Joe's dad way back when. Lots of connections. Molly, always appreciate the time. Thank you for doing this. If I told you six months ago, Joe Maurer, first ballot Hall of Famer. Like, I'm just telling you, Molly, like, if you had asked sure. me, like, last summer, I would have said, yeah, I think he eventually gets in, but no way, no how does he make it on the first ballot. But the way he's been polling, I think we're going to get some really good news tomorrow. I, I think that you and I are are kind of on that same page, and I never wanted it to seem that I didn't think Joe was a Hall of Famer. I think just from experience and seeing how things have played out in the past, the trouble catchers have gotten in guarding first ballot support along the way. I think only a couple of catchers that got in on their first ballot uh, bench and maybe Pudge Rodriguez. But uh, yeah, I, I was hopeful that it was going to come at some point. I just wasn't sure if it was going to be the first year, but I am so happy that it's been trending the way it has. I think all of us that um, are supporting Joe and have supported Joe for all these many, many years are, are really anticipating a good outcome tomorrow. Yeah, I mean, I just, I didn't think it would happen. Now, does it matter, Molly? Like, nobody refers to you as Paul Molitor, first ballot Hall of Famer. You're Paul Molitor, Hall of Famer. Like, so does it matter if you're first ballot Hall of Famer or not? Well, even after 20 years, Doogie, it's it's a little hard to uh, kind of wrestle with the whole idea of being in that fraternity. But I don't like the fact that some people try to tear the Hall of Fame that somehow they differentiate whether you were first ballot or fifth ballot, or in some cases like Jim Cott and Tony Oliva, you had to wait 40 years. So um, 
Hall of Famers are Hall of Famers. I, I just don't like the concept that, hey, I think he might be a Hall of Famer, but I'm going to make, make him wait a couple of years. Harmon Killebrew had to wait, I think, four years. So go, go figure. Yeah, I mean, it just doesn't make sense to me. To me, you're either a Hall of Famer or you're not. So if you're a Hall of Famer, I get it. You know, you can only vote for 10, but more often than not, there's not going to be 11 names on the ballot where you're leaving off a surefire Hall of Famer. I think that's the only justification. We we every once in a while you'll get a logjam on the ballots. We had it after some of the steroid things that happened. Maybe more than ten people were potentially um, people who you wanted to vote for, and you just couldn't squeeze them all in. I, I get that that could happen, but that should be pretty rare. Where do you stand in the Hall of Fame voting process? This just hit me. We'll talk plenty about Joe, of course, but like to me, Molly, there are some people that have ballots that I don't think should have ballots, and there are people that should have ballots that don't. Like, does Bob Costas have a vote? Did Vince Scully, the late Vince Scully, did he have a vote, right? Because there was that separation, print versus electronic. I just wonder if the voting process can be tweaked a little bit. It's it's not perfect. I don't think it ever was, and I don't think it ever will be. Um, the fact that it's a Baseball Writers of America poll and how you qualify to, to receive a Hall of Fame ballot, I, I think they could look at that a little more closely. You know, for a long time before interleague play, National League, writers never saw American League players. And eventually down the road, they were gonna have to cast votes on people that they never had a chance to see play. So I think they should always look at ways to improve it, maybe upgrade the integrity of the vote. Um, I think we're all happy that it's a hard hall of fame to get into, but we wanna be as, as positive as we can as having the best system to get people in. And I do like that we have protection on the back end people that can come before veterans committees down the road if somehow they're overlooked during the course of their tenure on the ballot. Amen on that. Molly, this is like a movie. I mean, I get it. I think it's happened before, right, where two people from the same high school have ended up in the Hall of Fame. Like, it's happened, but it's so incredibly rare. Like, just think about it, right? I mean, and then you end up managing, Joe. Like, the whole thing <laughs> to me, it absolutely could be a movie. It's, it's pretty amazing. Um, I'm not sure how many high school people that shared that the same graduation school from high school um, are in the hall. I think there's, there's, there's at least a handful. I'm not sure. It's but rare then, though. I mean, yes, but it's very, very rare. And, 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 you know, that the whole idea of it could be a movie script, it goes back to when Joe was just a youngster and I was notified by a lot of people that I know in St. Paul about this kid that's coming up. And even his high school coach, Jimmy O'Neill at Creighton was a teammate of mine through all my years when I played at that particular level. So I knew about Joe. I saw him play in high school. I was in player development when he came through our system, watched how his career just skyrocketed when he got to the major leagues. And of course, having a chance to manage him down the end of the, the, end of the stretch of his unbelievable career. Um, yeah, I don't know if you can make that up, but I'm, I'm glad that I was able to see a lot of, of what he was able to do in the game. I mean, I think about some of the greatest swings ever, right? I mean, yours comes to mind, but Certainly Joe's, like for a lefty swing, as good as it gets. Yeah, I, you know, I, I don't think I had a pretty swing. I'm hoping that it was a quick swing that kind of helps. But in Joe's case, it was it was a beautiful thing to watch. Um, I think that in today's game, you don't see a lot of guys that look so unnerved and calm at the plate as Joe always did when he stepped in the batter's box. And he was just tremendously efficient. And that patience helped him understand the strike zone. Um, he had some unique philosophies about hitting that he developed through experience and proved to be very, very worthy of, of what the effort he put into making his, his swing as good as he possibly could. That's interesting. So you wouldn't classify your swing as pretty? 
mean, uh, the was pretty. You know, I, I think some guys just have the, more of the flow to it. You know, you, and for whatever reason, it seems like there's more left-handed pretty swings than right-handed swings. You know, you think about guys like, you know, Griffey comes to mind, and Rod Carew was just like, it, it, it was like he was swinging to an opera. I mean, it was just so smooth and fluid. But right-handed swings, um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. It was a little, it was definitely a lot more choppy than it was smooth. That run of 06 to 10, with all due respect to Johnny Bench or Pudge, I'm not sure there's a better five-year stretch for a catcher in the history of the game, the way he dominated. Yeah, you know, I, I think that is one of the reasons that maybe you and I were just a tad surprised about the support he's getting in his first year. I think as MLB has broken down candidates uh, at a much higher level over the past few years, they, you know, guys like Brian Kinney on MLB, they, they really, they really speak to the peak years of the player. How long was he one of the top two or three players in the game? And for Joe's case, that stretch you're talking about, you know, just on match, particularly given the position that he played, how he handled pitchers, the way he could, you know, shut down the running game and you add all, all that offense on, on top of it. I mean, his whole career was great, but there was a stretch there that you'd have to mention him in the top two or three players in the game. I mean, the defense, you touched on it briefly there, Molly, but the defense was next level. In fact, Joe was in studio the other day. Joe Schmidt asked him, my colleague, he said, hey, what stat are you most proud of? He said the gold gloves, right? Yeah. I mean, we fixate, and rightfully so, on the batting average and batting average runners in scoring position, batting average bases loaded, all the hits. But Joe is most proud of those gold gloves. I mean, he was next level on defense. Well, he knew how to use his frame. That helped him a lot, I think, in terms of blocking before we got into the new generation of the one-knee catcher. Um, and I, to be honest with you, I think catching is probably one of the least knowledgeable areas for me in the game, and I really had to try to learn more, especially coaching and managing. But I'll always remember watching Joe in spring training doing a session of about four or five pitchers throwing on the side early in camp. And you got wild, <clears throat> wild stuff, nasty stuff, moving stuff. and it's kind of like how he hit, and maybe that's why his hitting was as calm as it was. He knew he could catch the ball from anybody at any time at any place, and it was just amazing how soft of hands he had, I, that he displayed when I watched him on that particular particular day, and then I saw it throughout his career. What was it like managing him? I mean, what were those conversations like in your office? I mean, I can't imagine, Molly, you could find anybody to say a bad word about Joe. I, I You can't. Um, I think what people saw <clears throat> through all his years through media – is who he is. Um, he's just a very kind, humble, talented man. Um, it, it was a pleasure to manage. Uh, he helped me understand the pulse in the locker room. He'd come in and share, hey, this is going on, or this player could use a boost, or whatever it was. He was always there willing to try to help unify the team any way that he possibly could. And even though he was soft-spoken and maybe didn't, wasn't outwardly you know, the vocal leader, when he would hold those little ceremonies after the game and present the game balls to different people for different things, you could just feel uh, how palpable the respect was for him in that clubhouse every time he did that. And uh, so for a manager, it was a dream. He wasn't quite the same player when he was in his prime for me. But if I had a situation late in the game when I needed a hit, start an inning, drive in a two-out run, he was the guy right to the very end that I would want to see in that batter's box. How emotional was it there toward the end as he knew, hey, my career is wrapping up? Uh, you know, it's it's emotional. And, you know, I, I tried to relate to it a little bit as we wound 
down Joe's final days, which culminated with that little appearance behind the plate, uh, just to throw the gear on. However, briefly, I thought it was very impactful and very emotional. And I think, uh, you know, when you're playing, you try not to think about the end, but there's really not a lot of gradualness to it. You're in uniform, you're in uniform, you're in uniform, and then one day you're just not. And uh, there's not really anywhere to prepare for that. I think a lot of players speak about duo retirement. There's one when you take off the uniform, and then there's a little bit of time down the road where you kind of let go of the game emotionally. What will this honor mean for St. Paul? It's a beautiful thing. I, I don't have any magical, magical formulas, but I think people who love baseball that live in that city are proud of the fact that we will have four players enshrined in Cooperstown. Uh, you know, Dave Winfield, Jack Morris, and myself kind of were in the same generation, competed against each other at different levels. Now, Joe being a couple of decades removed from that. But yeah, uh, I think there's only one other city that has at least four uh, Mobile, Alabama. Um, I've heard that a few times. But more unexpected from a northern climate city to produce Hall of Fame type baseball players. And I, I think we all take a little bit of pride in that. Yeah, I mean, that's it. I mean, Molly, like if you were having a conversation with somebody, from USA Baseball in North Carolina or somebody in Florida or California or Texas, and you say, hey, four Hall of Famers from this northern climate city, St. Paul, Minnesota, right. like they'd be like, what? No, that can't be true. Uh, they, they, are you sure you're not confusing it with the NHL? I mean, uh, <laughs> there's there, there, the, uh, the unlikelihood, given the short season that we have up here for base, baseball, for youth baseball, summer baseball, but I, I will say that at least a small part of it was, I think Joe and Jack and Dave and I all speak to the great programs that the city presented to us and the opportunities that we had. There were summers when I was a kid, I planned three teams. You know, I planned a travel team and a little league team and a Babe Ruth team. So I was playing baseball five, six nights a week, even when I was like 10 or 11 years old. So um, combine that with some of the dedicated coaches along the way. And I think that probably helped all four of us. In Joe's case, maybe more than the rest of us, his dad was maybe the biggest influence. And I think that's going to be part of the emotion for Joe. Um, hopefully when we get the good news tomorrow that, you know, you're going to reflect about some of those things in Joe's case, particularly with his father. Yeah. I mean, I even think of grandpa Jake too, but yeah, certainly his dad. I mean, I just, you know, I mean, Joe's not one to show a whole lot of emotion, but yeah. I have a feeling, you know, when, when thinking about his dad, there's going to be some emotion there. There will be, you know, I played against his dad. Uh, we, we were just about the same age, yeah, back even to grade school. I think he went to St. Columba, if I can, if I can remember. And then, of course, uh, through, through the high school years, we had some Legion and other competitions. So that, that's kind of just further the connection between Joe and myself through the year, the fact that I knew his dad from way back when. I'll leave you with this, Molly. Anything else that we should know about Joe's? We tell the story. I mean, I think, hey, whether it's 2025, 2026, or tomorrow i mean it's going to happen right so i think we can celebrate this honor but i'm thinking he gets the call tomorrow i i'm way more confident now to be honest than i was like you said maybe six months or a year ago um i just can't wait to see how it turns out and you know joe's response will be a little bit muted because of joe being joe but you know, for all the Twins fans who celebrated Cot and Oliva a couple of years ago in Cooperstown, and we're going to have a chance now to do it for our, our hometown kid, it's going to be really, really special, and I can't wait to be a part of it. What's that weekend like in Cooperstown? Like, when you went in, was there one Hall of Famer more than anybody else? You're like, I need to go talk to that person? 
I can't say there was one. There was a few people that made me extremely nervous. Um, Willie Mays and Sandy Koufax. I don't know why those two. You know, Harmon was my boyhood hero, and he was there. But I had a connection with him through the years of his broadcasting and playing in Minnesota. But those are the two guys that, you know, I, I remember Koufax when I was a kid when I was nine years old watching him stick it to the Twins in 65. And Willie Mays is just Willie Mays, you know. So that th those are the two guys that I remember that I, I – I didn't have a lot to say, given the opportunity. Molly, always a pleasure to catch up with you. Your analysis is gold. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I do. You do well, man. I'll see okay. you. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. We segue from Molly to Terry Ryan. Terry Ryan drafted Joe in 2001. The famous words of friend Jeff Dubay. You cowards, you pathetic cowards, for passing on USC pitcher Mark Pryor. He was the consensus, just about consensus number one pick. Everybody said, hey, twins, you need to take Mark Pryor. No way, no how should you take Joe Maurer. Well, it worked out for Terry. Terry joined me in studio on Monday. Let's go back. Let's go sequentially here. So we're talking April, May 2001. You have the first pick in the draft. What was that pre-draft process like? Well, we had seen Joe quite a bit prior to his eligibility year. So we're going back when he was like 16, 17 for sure. And we got a lot of looks from our scouting department, not just Mike Radcliffe, but other guys had seen him. He was probably one of the top 10 coming into the year for eligibility. And once he got done with basketball, you know, we started going over to watch him take swings and inner squads and scrimmages and so forth. And about mid-April to late April, he was ready to be seen for good. You know, he had his basketball muscles still early April. So we rushed a number of people in through Creighton and wherever he played, as did 30 or 29 other clubs, of course. So there were probably 30 scouts every game he played. And by the time we got into mid to late May, we had it down to about maybe three guys. And ultimately, when we got the scouting department together and all the people that had seen him, we had some fine discussions about it. And some of them were good debate, some of them good points. And we ultimately came to the decision that we wanted to take Joe, and that was Mike and all the scouts that had seen him, and I had seen him a lot. I saw him way more than I thought I would because I kind of wanted to see who else was there and how, what, the, what the competition was. And even picking one, there wasn't any competition other than between ourselves. And it came down to between he and Pryor. And Pryor was a very good-looking pitcher. And at that time, Doogie, we had Przinsky. It's not like we didn't have a catcher. He was already there, and he was a pretty good catcher. And, we decided to take Joe for a lot of reasons, but his talent, and I have mentioned this a couple of times, but when you get 1-1 in the draft, you like to get a Hall of Fame type guy. 
and obviously here tomorrow, we're starting to look exactly how that's going to end up. Do you remember all the heat you took for yeah. passing on Mark Pryor? I do. I do, and it was legitimate. We needed pitching terribly. We were in a bad spot here. At that time, we were struggling. We couldn't get people in the ballpark, all that type of stuff. And, and Pryor was the type of guy in the draft. He was a number one starter. He was up there with the, the guys like Strasburg and Scanis, the guy last year, and I would say Kerry Wood, who got deeper in the draft than that. But he was that type of talent. So it was certainly a good argument on taking Pryor or Joe Maurer. You couldn't go wrong with either one. So when did you ultimately decide or defer to Mike and others, hey, Joe was our guy? Was it like the night before the draft? Like, what was that like? Yeah, it was last it, 24 to 48 It was hours. a little earlier than that. But, you know, you go through and all of a sudden you start worrying about signability and you do a little bit more legwork on exactly who his representatives are. We were fortunate, I think, that uh, Ron Shapiro was his agent and he had Kirby Puckett all those years. And along with a lot of other guys that we were familiar with. So we had a good rapport with the agency, so it all came together. You know, when you've got a player of his caliber and he's seven or eight miles away from where you play, it's tough to bypass that. And he, his makeup was pristine, everything about him aimed to be in a twin. He, I think he wanted to be a twin, which was good too. There, at that time, there weren't a lot of players that were saying, oh, I hope the twins take us. You know, not too many guys would, say, would have said that. I mean, you know this, I mean, but some kids crawl up in the fetal position and think, I don't want to deal with that pressure. Hometown kid, I don't want my hometown team to take me. But you're saying he was all about wanting to be a twin? I believe so. And, you know, with, with all the attention and exposure that he had his previous two years leading up to the draft, he was a football guy and the player of the year in high school football. There wasn't much that was really going to scare him off. And playing in front of his hometown, now, the Maurer family is deep in baseball and deep in population in St. Paul. He had a lot of people around him that could support him. And we also drafted his brother, Jake, and we signed his other brother, Billy. And we wanted to make sure that he was surrounded with people that can point him in the right direction if he had some issues or questions. And it worked out quite well. Prettiest swing you ever scouted? Pretty good. Pretty good. I tell you, there are, you know, old rude people talk about old rude swing. And I saw Robin Ventura when he was at Oklahoma State. You know, he had that huge hitting streak. He had a good looking swing. But there are people, Sean Green with Toronto, if you remember him, Sean Green had a swing that you watch and you think, man, he's got a beautiful swing. So he was in a mix of a handful of guys. I. You might, it's too bad Mike Radcliffe's not still around because he, he sees a guy swing the bat and he says, well, we got to stay with this guy. And one swing, and he said, man, this guy's got a beautiful swing. I'm not that great of an expert on swings, but he seemed to be, and I think any hitting coach, when you take a look at his approach, he was never off balance, ever. It didn't seem like, even against the best pitchers, even against the left-handed best pitchers with breaking balls, he always seemed to be in balance and had a plan. What would Mike be thinking right now? I mean, well, he'd be proud. Resting in peace. I mean, yeah, just think about he'd how be proud, proud Mike would be. He'd, he'd be very proud. And, you know, he had his hand in this organization for a long time, and he was the director of scouting for, I don't know, 13, 14 years. And, you know, he knew what he was doing. You know, it's, it's not only ability when you're in the draft. You've got to worry about makeup. You've got to worry about injury history. You've got to worry about 
what kind of kid he's been raised like. And Joe checked off all those boxes. You know, the, the only thing that he really didn't possess when you're looking 1-1 is that back fence power. But if you want a bat, he had the bat and at a position that's very tough to find in the amateur world. Catchers that can hit, especially left-handed, there are few and far between. He had that one run though, was it 06, his MVP year? Two, uh, he, it was 2008. 2008, whatever or nine. it was. 2009, the year before we went, we went to Turner He had the field. month where he hit like 11 or 12 home runs. That's now, correct. Granted, a few went like yeah. first row, second row, left field, right? But yes, they did, but a home run's a home run, and you look back on it, he had 28 of them that year, and no one's going to say how many feet each one of them were. So he, you know, that was a contract year. It was a huge year for him. And if Billy was, the, Bill Smith was the GM at that time, and it was a huge year for Billy and the franchise. We couldn't let him go. No. I no. Mean, it would have been a disaster. Not. No, with the transition to Target Field, yeah, the year he had. Yeah, sure, you we know We were this. opening up a new ballpark. During Thereafter, the, yeah, you yeah. know a lot of people were, you know, Monday morning quarterbacking saying, whoa, eight years, 184. But in that momentary, I don't remember one person questioning the decision to give him that contract. I know I wasn't, and I've, I obviously was working with Bill at the time, and so was a few other people that were, and Mike was one of them. I think all of us said, listen, that's, that's reasonable. He's going to get that. He's going to get it somewhere, and it, if we don't give it to him, someone's going to pay it, and it's not going to go well. You know, and I'm, obviously, I'm the guy that let Ortiz go, and I've, I've regretted that ever since, but you can't let all-star caliber players get away from me, especially in the situation that we were in. We were very competitive in those years. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, I mean, I think about yeah, just that whole run. I mean, that might be the one blemish when looking at his resume is the lack of postseason success, but that's not his fault. No, no, I wouldn't say. We Maybe just, it's Phil Cousy's fault. We didn't get it done. Yeah. We just didn't get it done. We had opportunities to put the Yankees away in a couple of those games that would have put a all that streak business to to the side. We just didn't get it done when we needed to close them out. We had leads a couple times, and unfortunately, the Yankees are the Yankees, and they were pretty good, and they had that core of players that we just couldn't get beyond. How will you celebrate? I mean, it's inevitable. I mean, I think it happens tomorrow, but if it happens to be in 2025 or 2026, like to me, he's getting in. How much will you celebrate that? I would be very happy for Joe and his family. I'm sad that his dad's not around because Joe and his dad were very tight, as were a lot of people that were affiliated with the Maurer family. He was a baseball guy through and through. So I'm, I'm thrilled for Teresa, his mother, Billy and Jake, and of course the spouse, and Joe's children. You know, this is a big deal. The Hall of Fame is unbelievable. I've been to, fortunate enough to have been out to Cooperstown many times through the, the last decade or so, and it's, it's a tremendous exposure, experiment. It's tremendous everything out there baseball-wise. So I hope he gets in and he can relish the fact that he joins Molitor and Winfield and that whole group that Carew and Oliva and Cott and Blylevin, all the twins that are in there. It, it would be a tremendous thing to happen for Joe and his family. Did he ever have a slump in the minors? Like, so he would have began I've, his pro career soon after signing? Did he begin not too, there? Not too quick, but he went to Elizabethan. He yeah. went to Elizabethan and he hit four, over 400, Doogie. I mean, and he's a high school kid. 
So he and his brother went down Elizabethan and he took that league on and I think the next year he was in maybe, I don't know if it was Cedar Rapids, might have been Cedar Rapids. That was no problem. Then we push him up to double A and then we traded A.J. Pruszynski to make room for him in Minnesota. Then he got hurt quick, but he, he just never really had an area that I recall that he failed. He might have had a tough week, but I doubt that. He just, you know, a guy with that type of ability with hand-eye coordination, he just had a feel for the bat, and he, he is very clean catcher. You know, he could shift, he could block, he very soft hands, he could frame, he could throw, he is accurate. You know, I don't think he missed any time in the minor leagues with injuries either. You know, he just, he went through the minor leagues with enough ability and statistics and results that we felt comfortable trading A.J. Brzezinski, who was quite good, and we got a good return on that. Yeah, I mean, one of the all-time great trades in Twins history. It was a good trade, but the people that were responsible, one of, one of them was Wayne Kresge, because he recommended that Nathan could close. And Bonzer and uh, I'm trying to think of the other one that came over here in that trade. Oh, Liriano. Liriano, yeah. We got we got lucky on Liriano because he was injured for the Giants, and they I think they just had enough, and they wanted it. They wanted Przinsky bad, so they threw Liriano in on this thing because I don't think they ever thought he'd be healthy enough. So it was a great trade, and that Joe allowed us to make that trade. You touched on the defense, but so. Joe was in here the other day, right? And so Joe Schmidt asked Joe, what stat are you most proud of? He mentioned the gold gloves. I mean, there's so much of a fixation, and I get it, the swing, and we're going to talk about that in the offensive numbers, but the defense was next level. Yeah, he was very good. He had a real good feel for our pitchers, too. He had a good relationship with all our pitchers. Uh, you know, that's about the Santana time and Silva time and those types of guys, Radke, obviously, but, oh, he could catch hard throwers, he could catch finessers, he could fit crafty lefties. I mean, he just, he had a knack on being able to read swings back there, which the good ones do. Oh, that's one of the reasons he's got a chance to go in the Hall of Fame. I mean, he was a gold glove catcher, batting champ catcher. I mean, there isn't anything on his resume. He had all kinds of all-star opportunities. So he has, he checks all those boxes that Hall of Famers have. I mean, I would argue, Terry, from 06 to 10, those five seasons, with all due respect to Johnny Bench or any other catcher, I'm not sure a catcher had a better five-year run in the history of the game. Then you look at his 10 years at catcher. Who was the second-best catcher over those 10 years? I mean, maybe Molina, somebody else. But the separation from Joe to who was number two. Well, Posey's in there somewhere. He had a pretty Yeah, and good he came stretch. in a little a bit little later. later. Right. But my point is, when you're the best player at your position for a decade, yeah. Like well, you're a surefire Hall of Famer. Yeah, Pudge Rodriguez was in there. You know, he was a little before Joe, and Posey's a little after Joe, and Johnny Bench, obviously. I think Johnny Bench is probably the guy that everybody considers the greatest catcher that's ever played the game. So you're starting to put him in that type of neighborhood. Yeah, there's no doubt that he's going to get some attention, and he did, did and is, and hopefully it'll come to fruition tomorrow. What else is important for us to know about Joe? Well, he was a team guy, you know, he, he was very unselfish. He wasn't a rah-rah guy. I, I think everybody's aware that he wasn't a clubhouse rah-rah guy, but he certainly led. 
And if you're looking for a guy with the presence and calm and no panic and those types of things, that was Joe. You know, he came along the right time with guys that could take some of that rah-rah business, like Morneau. Morneau was pretty good at that. Kadire was excellent at that. So he was, he was around guys. Punto did a lot of that. He was around a good bunch of teammates. Hunter, you know, Jock Jones, all those guys. Mike Redmond at one point. Yep, yeah, yeah. Mike Redmond did a nice job. You like to have a guy that's a backup catcher like Redmond because he'll, he'll make sure that I think Joe had a lot of respect for Mike Redmond. And he knows that's the type of guy Joe was. He had an opportunity to play some great human being. You think you can get anybody to say a bad word about Joe? I mean, that matters too, right? Character, yeah. the kind of person you are. Yeah, there are people in this market, especially, that'll say some things that well, aren't it's very complimentary. Tied to the on the field, right? The lack right. of power, probably right. the bilateral yeah, leg that weakness. Business, you know, I'm not sure. How but I'm it. just saying overall, the person. Like, best of luck trying well, to find anybody person, in the front office, coaching staff, teammates. If you find a person that says something negative about Joe, they don't know him. They can't because there isn't anything that you can look. I'm guessing, and I don't know this for fact, but I'll bet you he's a fantastic husband, and I'll bet you he's a wonderful father, and I know he's great to his brothers and his mother. You know, any time you can find a player that's fantastic to his mother, you better sign him because that shows pretty much who the kid is. Were you at that press conference at Creighton when he signed? And he I was up there. Jersey? Yeah, remember that day? I was there. Sure, I I was there, and he looked like he was about twelve. If you remember him, Jeez, he was lean, and you know I'm not sure he shaved yet, but he was. You know, at that time you say, man, this this is one one, and this is a big deal at Creighton High School. Yeah, I went over there, and we pulled out the jersey and did the thing, and he signed the contract and all that stuff. Yeah, I do remember that. I mean, just like the rest of my lifetime, I don't know if we'll see an athlete do what he did. Like, I'm convinced he would have been an NFL quarterback, probably a pretty good one if he wanted to go the football route. I think he could have played Division One basketball. I don't know well, about I, major, but I, I think he could have uh, played college basketball. I went and saw him play basketball, and he went up against a high school that had good talent, and he carved him up that night. And I thought, geez, this guy's a Big Ten caliber basketball player. I saw him play football. I we flock scouts in to see his football and basketball games to see what kind of athlete he is compared to baseball. And it's a little different in baseball because you're looking for athletics, but you can't see everything in, in a baseball uniform. But you go watch him play basketball and his footwork and quickness and angles and all that stuff that they used in boxing out and how tough you can be. And we flocked people in to see him play basketball, football, and we certainly saw him play baseball. I think we had a lot of depth on him. And he, I don't even think he knew who was coming in, but all clubs go in and watch winter sports if they play him. I would be remiss, Terry, while I have you. Just how's life? What's keeping you busy? Well, I'm retired, and I've got grandchildren, and my wife's got me busy, and my health's good, Doogie, which is important. I'm about 10 years out of that cancer scare that I had. So things are good. I'm, I retired from the Phillies. I was working for them for quite a while, you know, five years or six years, five and a half, I guess. So I still follow the Twins and I follow the game. And it's, you know, the Twins are, they're pretty darn good. Mm -hmm. They've had a couple nice years here and they had a, a great year last year. Finally got rid of that streak that I helped build up. 
And I think, you know, I, I don't know about this TV contract. It's concerning because they just can't seem to do anything. So I, I feel sorry for Derek and Thad Levine. They just they haven't been able to do much. And they're pretty good at what they do over there. And I, I really I think they've done a nice job in getting them to where they're at. And they've got a good nucleus here. And they've drafted well. And they've got a lot of things going in the right direction. I mean, I'd argue. I mean, they don't necessarily need to do anything. Yeah, it's unfortunate Sonny Gray's gone Kintamaeda. They have some depth, though. I mean, Louis yeah. Varland, Bailey Ober. I mean, it would be nice to me if you had a starting pitcher, but to me, you literally don't need to do anything. And they need you to still keep, have the best roster yeah, in the division. They need to keep some of those key guys on the field, and in particular Buxton and Polanco. They need to keep them on the diamonds so they can end up. They've got talent, and there's a couple guys on that team. Lewis is another one. They need to keep them on the diamond, and they will be fine. They've got to make sure that they've got enough depth on that mound, though. And you're always worried about pitching. I'm always worried about pitching, and I'm sure they're the same. Glenn Perkins and Joe were teammates with the Twins. Both graduated high school in 01. Glenn went to Stillwater. Maurer, as we established, Creighton-Durham Hall in St. Paul. They were all-star teammates in 2013 in Miami. Teammates with USA Baseball, too. And on all-star teams in town high school years. Glenn was great on Joe when I stopped by his house the other day. Glenn, let's go sequentially. Class of 2001, you, Joe Maurer. Think about it. Like, let's go back 23 years long, now to this it, day. It's, it's a long crazy, time. Crazy, isn't it? It's a long time. It really is. Um, yeah, I, you know, it's, it's funny. We've been tied together in different ways for, I, guess, I mean, over 20 years now, 25 years, um, throughout high school. And then I think it, it was really cool. I think both of us, something that we'll remember forever was at the Lions All-Star Game, uh, being roommates for that thing. And, and, uh, you know, and then our, our paths diverted from there. And then three years later, they came back when I got drafted by the twins. And, uh, yeah, you know, I, I was, I was thinking of, as this was going to happen, like I've known him and, and played with him for so long. Um, it, it's a, it's an honor. It really is. Like it was truly an honor to share a clubhouse and a field and a hotel room with him 25 years ago. I, I, I just, you, 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 life happens and you don't think about those things. And, I think maybe when guys are on the cusp of, of what Joe's on the cusp of, you everybody that has surrounded him reflects on the time, you know, and, and in a way maybe lives vicariously through him. And and I think that every teammate that he played with shares it with him at, a, at different levels. Did you see the brilliance early on? Like that first time, whatever that was, 1998, 1999, on that high school circuit. I mean, we saw it, right? I mean, we knew – at a young age, I mean, he's excelling as a basketball player yeah, on the football field, on the baseball diamond. But did you see it right away? There's a there's a huge difference between being good in high school, being good and being a, a a good major leaguer, and then being a Hall of Famer. My kids ask, like, why are you not going in the Hall of Fame? I've talked to them about Joe. They know Joe, and I said I'm not even in the same stratosphere. Like he he is so far beyond what anything that I've ever accomplished. Like. There, there's such a huge gap. So to say that, you, like back then, you predict that he's going to end up in the Hall of Fame. Like you're a number one pick. Like 
there's certain expectations, but nobody ever expects that from any kid and or any player or anybody, but especially not back then. I mean, everybody knew he was good. There's no question about that. He's always been he's good at everything. But to to say that like, oh yeah, he's a first ballot Hall of Famer. There's there's no chance that you could predict that. But I think the expectation was like, I mean, in high school, yeah, he's gonna play in the big leagues. Like, why wouldn't he? He's better. He's he's head and shoulders above everybody. Then and he he was you know basically his entire career. How many times were you an All Star? Three. 2013, 13, 14, 14, 15. 15. Yeah. 15. Yep. So three time All Star. Yep. Like your career. Yeah. Like off the charts. Yeah. I had but a think good about career. that separation, right? Like yeah. You're right. I mean, with yeah, all due respect, you have no chance to ever even be on the ballot, no, right? Never even it, it, that. None of that stuff ever even occurred to me. Like it was just a, that's a that's a non-starter, non-entity. That, like that's not ever. But like your career, like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he's. I think what did I tell the what did I tell my girls? I think I said the equivalent of of comparing me to Joe would be I played high school baseball and he played in the big leagues. That's the gap in my mind between what I accomplished in my career and what he accomplished in his. And and you know I I, I talked to them about there's twenty thousand plus guys that have ever played in the major leagues. Huge accomplishment just to get there. This goes this is 150 years. Huge accomplishment just to get there. I know that. There's, I think I was the 1,200 and change guy to get 10 years of service. Ever. That's like nobody. There's like 300 and some guys in the Hall of Fame. Like, you don't get in the Hall of Fame. It, it doesn't happen. That, that, like that, that just doesn't happen. And that's why just getting to the big leagues is an accomplishment. Tons of kids play high school baseball. And I feel like that's what I did compared to what, what he has done. I think that I truly believe that's how big the gap is. How good a guy is he? Like better person or better player? Better person. And I, I think that I think that that's what he wants to be known as. I think that there's I, I can't imagine that there's a, a, a guy that he ever played with or against that has a single ill word to say about him. It's just not possible. He is impossibly good at baseball and he's a better human. I mean just think about it. It's a movie, right? Like, yeah, St. Paul. Yeah, drafted by the hometown team. I mean, you probably remember that 01 draft. It was Mark Pryor. It was like, Jones, yeah. what are you doing? Yeah, taking Joe Maurer. There's this pitcher from USC that you have to take. Yeah, I, I mean, I think there was a, f- a faction of people that just thought like the the Twins drafted him because he's a Minnesota kid. And back then, they always made a point. I know Terry Ryan. It was always his goal to draft at some point in the draft the best hitter and the best pitcher from Minnesota, and maybe not even give them a realistic like we we we're doing this because you're a Minnesota kid and you've earned this. And I think there was people that thought that. I don't think I mean, I don't think the consensus was that that he was the the best. Sorry, hi. <laughs> That's my other daughter, Abby. <laughs> Pleasure. I uh, I don't I don't yeah I don't, I don't think that that was the consensus, but um, they obviously made the right choice. Yeah, I just I'm thinking it's a movie though, right? Like when you're drafted by the hometown team, right? And yeah, what he spent I mean, he made nine, it to the 19, big leagues in less than three years. Nineteen years in the organization. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I mean it's a it, like a, you you can't 
you can't make that story up. Nobody thinks of that story. And I, whatever he, whatever he would have done, he would have been the best at it. That's just Joe. You guys were all-star teammates. Thirteen. Yes. Was that it though? Yes. Okay. He so. got he got the concussions in, in like August of that year. Okay, but you were all-star teammates that one time. Yes. What do you remember about that experience? Where like a lot of big leaguers just gravitating toward Joe. Um. So it actually started in that that spring we played in the World Baseball Classic together, and so like Joe was always in the clubhouse and as a friend, so ordinary. He was literally just Joe, like John Doe. That was that was like he's just a person, a really good guy that that was really good at everything he did. And and so in a way you just take him for granted. Like it's just you you show up to work every day and I was gonna throw to him and we were gonna work together and we were gonna high five after the game and say that was fun. And then we got to the World Baseball Classic and I remember standing in the outfield with a couple of relievers and one of them was Craig Kimbrell who at that time was the best closer in the world and probably had one of the best arms in the world. And uh, he, we were standing out in left center field in Miami, and he said, how do you get him out? And all I'm thinking is like, well, I mean, you, well, you, you throw 99 with a hammer curveball. Like, that's how you get him out. He's like, I don't know how to pitch to that guy. He's the best hitter I've ever seen. And it made me realize, like, he's not normal. Joe's not normal. Like, like. He seems normal when you spend every day with him. And then you start to see the perception of, of other guys and uh, in, in what they think. You know, and, and when you see him hit every day, like, you can, you can find holes in his swing. I, I, I knew ways that you could pitch him, but, like, that's seeing him hit 500, 600 times a year for seven years at that point. But the, the perception that he had from everybody else was he is the best hitter in the world and I can't get him out. He had the advantage over the be- I was with the best American pitchers in, in, in you know in the country at that time and they didn't know what how to pitch to him. So it like it gave me a different perspective on him. I I was in the Twins bubble um and I hate to say it I took him for granted cuz he was just he was so nonchalant about it. he not nonchalant but he was it it it, it outwardly looked like it came so easy to him. And, and, but yeah, I mean, you, you start to talk to other guys around the league and it's like, yeah, he's pretty special. And the defense was next level, right? I mean, we can talk all we want about the offensive numbers. He, gosh darn. I mean, you can't find too many better catchers defensively in history. No. And, and I think that if we had the metrics that they have now, it, he would have been as well. It, it, back then it was, it was how, how good is the pitcher throwing? You know, how much notoriety does he have? Umpires were influenced by that at the beginning of my career. It was, how good is the hitter at the plate? If you're facing a, a, a really good hitter, the strike zone is smaller. What counteracted that was having Joe being the nicest guy, friends with all the umpires, also a really good catcher, and a really good hitter. And if he thought something was a strike, I'm pretty sure the umpires were going to think it was a strike too. And he helped me immensely early in my career when I was a middling starter to be better because he got pitches. But I truly believe that if, if, he, 
if he caught in the era of the metrics the way they are now, that he still would have been at the top because he could he could his he was able to use his frame to make balls look like strikes. He was strong enough to hold low pitches. He did all the things that that catchers are taught to do now just naturally. Like I think you could a catching coach now could take video of Joe in 2008, 9, 10, 11. I think he won his first gold glove in 06 and say this is how you should catch in today's game. And he was doing it 15, 18 years ago. Um no, he he was that good. And then as I transitioned to the bullpen having a higher target, big guy Higher target, I, that's where I like to throw the ball. I could hit him right in the mask, and nobody was touching it. I mean, you look at the numbers. I mean, the 10 years he was a catcher, like the, whoever that second catcher was, Molina or whoever it was, like the numbers aren't even in the ballpark. Like for, nope. that, for that decade stretch yeah. as a catcher, yeah, he was so far and above every other catcher in the game. Right? I mean, that's why, to me, he's an easy first ballot Hall of Famer. When you're the best player at your position by a landslide he for was, a decade, he was, you deserve to be in immediately. He was leading the all-star vote, the fan vote. He was one of the most popular players in the game playing in Minnesota. Um, obviously not a big market. He was behind the plate. He's not a guy that's going to put himself in front of the camera. He's not going to say things to get himself attention, but he got attention by the way that he played. Um the Hall of Fame to me is is how high was your peak and how long was your peak. And and all of the counting numbers aside, if if you were that good and you were that good for long enough, you're in. And I think you can say he won his first bat until I believe it was 06. Until 13 when he was in that All-Star game. So that's 8 years. That's 8 baseball seasons where there he had no peers. And and his peak was he was the best player in the game. He won an MVP. And he he probably could have won another one or two. But his peak was as high as it gets. And then he was he was when a team was preparing to face the twins, there was Maurer, there was Morneau, there was Kadire on those teams, but it, but it was Joe. Joe was the Joe was the, the one that got on base. He was the one that started it. He was the one that caused the pitchers the most headaches. It was 10 pitches to Joe, and then, oh, now i got to face Kadire. And, and he, but he, he started that. He was the best player on our team. He was the best player in the league. He was the best player in the game. That's the peak. And then he did that for eight, eight seasons, and he was a good catcher from the moment he got up there. Correct, but, but I think if you start at 06, if you go 06, 07, 08, 09, 10, yep. that five-season run, with all due respect to Johnny Bench, any other catcher. Best you look at those numbers for those five years, that's the best five-year run for any catcher in the yeah. history of the game. Yep. And, and it, was, it was catching as much as anybody. It was DHing some of those days that he didn't catch. Um, he was on the field all the time. And, and it was noticeable when he wasn't there. Everybody knew. Everybody felt it. Um, he changed the dynamic of, of our team when he was in playing. And those are the things. I mean, yeah, it's, it's, there's zero question in my mind. He's, he's on the Mount Rushmore of catchers in baseball history. And so how does that guy not get in? How does he not get in right away? Like, the more you think about it, the more it seems like a no-brainer. If the concussion issue never happens, what sort of numbers are we talking about? 
I mean, he's got to he's he's. I mean, right now we're talking about surefire first ballot Hall of Famer. I mean, could you imagine? Yeah, I mean, he's got over two thousand hits, so it it was certainly going to be over twenty five hundred. Um, I think even more than that. Yeah, and, and I I mean, would he have played beyond thirty five? Maybe, but like, it also wasn't surprising me that he like he has kids and and he. This goes back to him just being a normal guy. Like, he has a family and he wants to spend time with his family as well. So it, it like, it didn't surprise me that he hung it up when he did. And I, 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 I don't know if he would have. I mean, that that's a question that nobody can answer. I don't even know if he could answer that question. But fifteen years in the big leagues. I mean, he's over twenty five hundred hits. He's. Who knows. You know, but that's that's the that, that's that's the game. But there's there's no way to predict that. But I don't think that that matters because I think what he did in the time that he had was all that he needed to do. Is there anything we don't know about Joe? You mentioned you know spending nights in a hotel room. Heck, to this day, you're on the golf course, so you know him way way better than we do. Is there anything about him that we don't know? Anything about Joe that would surprise us? No, and and. I, I told you before this that I had asked him a very specific question when I interviewed him last year on, on air during his, the, the game after his Hall of Fame induction. And we had a bunch of other guys that played with him come through as well. And I, and I asked all of them that exact question. And, and nobody really had anything. Like, he's, he's somehow, like, maybe one of the most well-known athletes in Minnesota history. I mean, he, he, he played in an era where everything was on display, where people talked about him on Twitter, where people could take pictures of him when he went places. Like he was out there, but he's also like at the same time, like one of the most mysterious guys on the face of the earth. Like he, he rides that balance. Um, but I, I, I really think like, like who, who, I think who who people think he is is who he is. Like he's he's incredibly genuine. He really is. Like he's a private person. Um to everybody, I think even to his closest friends. Like that's just how he is. He's very understated. He's quiet. He goes about his business on his own terms. And I, I think everything that he's done he's been successful at and and He's he's calculated. He's all those things, but but I don't think people. I think people know him. I think who the perception of him is who he is, and and you know I I've obviously get forever have gotten questions about him. I mean, it was one of the first things. What's Joe actually like? And and he is who you think he is. Like he's a down to earth dude that just is incredibly talented. But that never has defined him, and I don't think it ever will define him. I, I think, you know, he's he wanted to be a good teammate. And I said, nobody's ever going to say a bad word about him. Nobody has a bad There's nothing you can say about Joe. He was the best. And that's who he is. And so, no, I mean, there's, I wanted something. When I interviewed him, I wanted a, I wanted a question. When I talked to all, his, to all of our old teammates, I wanted something. But it's just that's there's he's he's Joe, 
I, I really don't know how else to put it. Like, he's Joe. Still uber competitive to this day? Like, when you're on the golf course, or do you play in any of these pickup hockey games? He's, yeah, I mean, he's, yeah, competitive. Yep. But he, you know, like, he's not a, he, he's not going to slam his stick. He's not going to throw a golf club. You know, he's going he's gonna to miss a putt, and he's going to, oh, my God. And then he's going to go to the next hole and probably hit a good shot because he's able to just move on from it. And, um, you know, Justin and I, when we golf, we are constantly jabbing at each other, trying to help each other out, but also trying to knock each other off our games and win a couple bucks from each other. And he's just, he's just in his own lane. Um but yeah, I mean, I, I, you can't, you can't accomplish what he's accomplished and not be insanely competitive. He just isn't outwardly emotive about it, the way other guys are. How emotional do you think Tuesday will be? I mean, I'm sure he's going to think about his dad. Yeah, I mean, that's that's going to be the most difficult thing. And it was the first thing, like as this has gotten closer that I've thought about, like, man, what a moment this is going to be. And then I think I, I wish that Jay could be there for him. Um, you know, but he, he's going to have a smile on his face, and he's got to have a ton of other family around him. And, and um, you know, I, 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 I don't know. I'll, I'll be curious to see how he reacts to this. Like, there has to be something at some point that, that makes him show emotion. Like I know he has emotions obviously, but like he, he's so good at not showing him when he would slam his helmet, he made sure that he left the premises and then you'd hear it. You'd hear his helmet hit the ground, but he was never going to do it. He was never going to show anybody that he never wanted to show anybody that he was mad or weak or on tilt or anything. And, and at some point like, well, maybe this is it. I mean, there's no greater accomplishment in sports. And I don't think anybody sets out at any age to be in the Hall of Fame. I don't think, I don't, I would be shocked if that was his goal at the beginning of his career. I mean, you want to stay healthy, you want to play, you want to win championships, all those things. But I, I mean, I, 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 would, I would think that if something sports related was going to bring a tear to his eye, this would be it. Well, anything we didn't touch on with Joe that's important to know? No, I mean, I just, I, 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 I hope he's going to get in. It's a foregone conclusion. And I just, I, I, he was a first ballot Hall of Fame teammate, friend, mentor to me, to every other guy that, that we interacted with, um, and and I hope I like. Everybody says it doesn't matter when you get in, as long as you get in. I I just I, he deserves it, he really does. And so, the closer it gets, the more I want it for him, because of who he was and what he's meant to me. Mauer has been trending very very well. He needs to be named on seventy five percent of the ballots. As of Monday night, he was listed on 83.5% of the ballots that have been released. Now there's around 200 or so ballots that have not been released, but with so many ballots already released, he is trending in the direction of getting the call to the hall his first time 
on the ballot. We'll bounce all around. I caught up with Mark Coyle, Gophers Athletic Director, 10-ish days ago or so. Heck, it was when the men's hoops team was 3-1 and one in the Big Ten. Now the Gophers are 3-4, and four, hosting ranked Wisconsin on Tuesday night. Heck, if the Gophers can find a way to beat Wisconsin, do the fans rush the court Tuesday night? I bet they will. But yeah, 3-4 and four after being 3-1. and one. Ouch. We covered a bunch of topics. New year, new challenges, or maybe some recurring challenges. What, what are your biggest challenges right now? Uh, I would say the biggest challenges are uh, keeping Minnesota relevant. Uh, and what I mean by that is with all the conference realignment going on, with everything that's happened in the past 12 months, think about last time you and I got together was before the football season. We might have talked about NIL a little bit. And think about how much we talk about NIL today, right? Uh, there's no doubt college athletics is undergoing seismic changes right now. And I think it's my job, uh, our staff's job, to do everything we can to help our coaches keep our programs relevant in this rapidly changing landscape. Could you have foreseen any of this? Or even let's go back. So you'll celebrate eight years here in what, like early May. So you come back May of 2016, right? Now you're in the big boy chair. Think about the landscape of college athletics, Mark, eight years ago to today, or seven and a half years. Yeah, you know, it's, it's ironic you ask that question. I think I was at, the, uh, at a basketball game, and I think it was Jeremiah Carter came up to me, uh, our, our compliance director, but now we moved him into our NIL role. Absolutely, yeah. Jeremiah, senior, they're the same age. We had some yep, classes together here. Senior team. social yeah. athletics director and mm-hmm. does all of our NIL work for us. He and I were talking about how different. He's like, think about when you got here and what you talked about and what you're dealing with today. It is completely different. And literally, I go back to, you know, 14, 15 months ago, I couldn't talk about NIL. I mean, there was zero involvement with NIL. Now we can all talk about NIL. We can talk about the transfer portal, the two-time transfer, the conference realignment. So uh, it's what I love about my job. Uh, It changes daily, and I love that. But, again, I think a big part of my responsibility is to make sure, again, that we always focus on that student-athlete experience academically, athletically, socially. What can we do to give our kids a chance to stay relevant? The purity of college athletics, is that still a thing? Kids playing for the love of the game? Uh, I think so, you know, and, and I hope so. You know, it's why I got into this 30 years ago. And, and I can tell you, you know, you've heard me say this 100 times, Doogie, uh, doing it right in Minnesota matters. That That is so, so important in the state. It's very important to me. It's very important to our department. Uh, you know, we have a strategic plan, and we talk about being honest, being accurate, being competitive, being kind, and being inclusive. Those are things we talk about every day in our department. And, and again, when you hear me talk about the academic growth of our student-athletes, you know, we continue to be above a 3.4. Uh, we have great, great academic success. Our graduation rates is one of the highest it's ever been. I think we're 94, 95, 96% with our graduation rate. Uh, It's why we got to a football bowl game this year, which was awesome that we got recognized for academic achievement. Uh, So that stuff's all great. Athletically, we compete in the Big Ten Conference. And boy, is it competitive. And it's only going to get more competitive with our four new friends coming to next year, right? It's just, it's going to go up a completely different level. So when you ask me, is, is college athletics still pure? I think it is because I think, um, you know, our coaches, our student athletes here at Minnesota value the opportunity we have to represent this institution, the state. Uh, but I do think it's going to require leadership as we move forward that we do keep it collegiate athletics. I'm still struggling with NIL. Like to me, it looks like pay for play. Like, it's free agency. Like, it's the wild, wild west, whether that's for the good or for the bad. But, like, just educate me on it. I'm serious, Mark. Like, I really don't understand it. I thought the idea was an athlete comes, has some level of success, then the endorsements come with that. Now it seems like, okay, kid ends up at, you name the program, because there's a financial incentive to make that move. So that, to me, strikes 
as a pay-for-play scenario. Yeah. Am I wrong on that? Uh, I do not disagree with you at all. And again, I think that's what makes Minnesota unique. Uh, we have a collective, as you know, Dingytown mm-hmm. Athletes. I encourage all of your viewers to go to dingytownathletes.com and check it out and see the type of program we have because I feel very, very confident, you know, working with Jeremiah Carter, working with Doug Peterson, Office of General Counsel, working with President Edinger, and working closely with Derek and Rob with Dingytown Athletes. We have done things the right way. We, we have operated with how NIL was supposed to be operated. Uh, I can't say that for everybody across the country. I can only worry about Minnesota. But I can tell you that if our kids are involved in NIL partnerships with Dingytown Athletes, we're doing things the right way. Our kids are doing things to make themselves better, to make our community better. But there's no doubt it is such a big, big part of what we do now. And again, I really encourage people to go to dingytownathletes.com and just check it out. Learn and see what our student athletes are doing. We have over 625 kids who are great, great kids. There's not one of those kids I wouldn't say hire them tomorrow. They're great, great kids with good hearts doing it the right way. But it's a huge part of what we do moving forward, no doubt. Is it safe to say Dinkytown athletes this time compared to even six months ago? Yeah, maybe they're far behind, but have made a lot of strides. Is that safe to say? Uh, that is safe I mean, to say. Maybe not even far behind, but yeah. still but, have some catching up to do. But what I would say, not only Dinkytown athletes, but our fan base. We have to educate our fan base. You know, as you said, when you first heard NIL, it, is it pay for play? What is it? What does it mean? Uh, I kind of joke and say now it's legal. That's what NIL stands for, right? And, and so we're, we're trying to figure out how to do things the right way, right? And, and again, there's not much guidance nationally. And, and again, when we've had success with our NIL efforts through Dingytown Athletes, it's Rob and Derek who've done a wonderful job. It's Jeremiah Carter. But most importantly, it's our fans and supporters who, who have paid attention to NIL. They see how we're doing it. They're seeing that we're doing it the right way. And there's a reason, I think, why you're seeing great, great success with our winter programs right now because we've increased our NIL dollars, which is such a big part as we move forward. We had good success with our football program in terms of at the end of the season, how transfer portal, NIL, who's staying, who's leaving, those type of things. And our fans stepped up, helped us to secure a really good recruiting class. So, again, it's a big, big part of what we do. Big, but not all of it, right? Like, I'm just guessing, but if Darius Taylor wanted to make more money elsewhere, I just have a hunch he probably could. But is there something to be said about the experience, everything that entails being a student athlete here, including his football development, right? I'm sure he's got a goal of playing professionally, but like I'm thinking maybe he evaluated and said, you know what? Okay, maybe there's more money elsewhere, but Minnesota is the best spot for me. There is no question he could have had those opportunities. And there's no question Darius, I can't speak for Darius, but I know Darius. I've spent a lot of time with Darius, a great young man. So excited for him when we went back to Detroit. He could play in front of his family, his friends, and to be the MVP of the bowl game. Just a great, great young person. But but what I respect about Darius and other student athletes is they do value the experience at Minnesota. They, they value, you know, we have a world-class research institution. We have some of the best faculty in the world that teach our student-athletes. We're in a great metropolitan area with 18, 19 Fortune 500 companies. Uh, we have Leadership U where our student-athletes can interact with people in the C-suite across those Fortune 500 companies. Um, athletically, we compete in the best conference, in my opinion, the Big Ten. I think the Big Ten and the SEC have separated themselves from the other conferences. I don't mean that any disrespect to the other conferences, but there's no doubt nationally we've started to separate ourselves. So I think our kids realize that and see that. So again, I think Minnesota has a 
lot of things to offer, and there's no question that helps us retain those kids along with some of the NIL support we get from our fans. Will we ever call it like the Big 18 or something? Like, will it always be the Big 10? You and I need to get a marketing company and come up with a cool name, you know, because it, it's it's really interesting. You know, um, Rob Mullins, who's the athletic director out at Oregon, Rob and I worked together. My very first job in college athletics was at the University of Miami back in the early 90s. I was an entry-level ticket office person. He was an entry-level business office person. You know, he's been the AD at Oregon now 10 or 12 years. Obviously, I'm in year eight at Minnesota. But to be in the same room with him, having conference meetings, Minnesota, Oregon, uh, you know, now you have Jen Cohn, who used to be at Washington. She's now the AD at, at USC. You know, I've known Jen a long time. Uh, you know, it, it's just unique. Martin Jarman at UCLA, I've known Martin a long time. Uh, so you, you get these new programs in here. It's just interesting to see them. Uh, and then Troy Dannon, who's the AD at Washington. Troy used to be the athletic director at Northern Iowa, where I'm from, so I've known Troy a long time. So it's just interesting that you have these four West Coast partners jumping into the league next year, uh, and there's no doubt it's going to take the Big Ten up to a different level. I won't lie, I'm disappointed Big Ten West is gone. I just thought that was the easiest path. Right, I want to see your football program, right? I mean, I'm an alum, right? I mean, I can be a little biased, right? (laughs) That was the pathway to me, right? To, like, playing for a Big Ten championship, winning the Big Ten West. Now I don't know, Mark. Yeah, but uh, love divisions, very supportive of the West Division, and liked it a lot for Minnesota. Uh, But I also like the opportunity to compete. And, and I remember, uh, if you remember when I was hired, you know, one of the very first phone calls I had was with uh, Barry Alvarez. Uh, I have a lot of respect for Wisconsin. Uh, I didn't say I like Wisconsin. I said I have a lot of respect for Wisconsin. I want to make sure our fans understand that. Mm-hmm. But I respect what Barry did there and how he got there. And in that conversation, he told me, stop making excuses. And we've tried to have that mindset here. So now divisions are going away. Is it going to be much harder, much more competitive? No doubt it's going to be much harder. It's going to be much more competitive. But we can't make excuses. We've got to figure out how we can compete in that Big Ten Conference and how we can do those special things to get to a championship game, to get to a special bowl game if it's football. Or, you know, think about softball for a second. Think about baseball. Think about bat. I mean, you can go across the board to sports. Those four programs coming in, they're good across the board, and it's going to put a lot of pressure on everybody. Uh, but no doubt football gets a lot of the attention. But, again, we want to compete for championships, and we're not going to make excuses. Divisions are gone. We've got to figure out how to compete in this new Big Ten. I will say, though, to me it's a little weird that, like, tennis will be going out to Eugene, Oregon. You know, it, Like some of the non-revenue sports, uh, like, I don't know, would it make more sense to be more regionalized? Uh, Do you need to pay all that money to travel out there? Well, working, you know, I, I give Commissioner Petiti a lot of credit. You know, when, when, when we put the Big Ten and when the four programs came in and joined us, obviously USC, UCLA came a year ago, and when Oregon and Washington came this fall and they made those announcements, they all become official. I think August 2nd is the official date of 2024, and they come to the Big Ten Conference. You know, the commissioner has talked about that, with the exception of both basketball programs, uh, no other programs will have to do multiple trips out west. And if you look at our programs right now, whether it be tennis, softball, baseball, soccer, you name it, they're either traveling west or south to get games in, right? So we don't see it as additional travel. Maybe instead of having a non-conference uh, you know, opponent out on the west coast, it'll be UCLA or USC or Washington or Oregon. So we don't think it'll be much more travel for our student-athletes. And again, the Big Ten has assured us for those programs, if they go out west, it's only one time. With basketball, obviously, you have four programs out there. It'll be interesting to see how we do that basketball schedule. We haven't seen basketball schedules for next year. But I don't think there'll be increased travel it's something we talk about all the time with uh, in our conference and also with our student athletes. How do you evaluate the job that PJ Fleck did in 2023? Uh, you know, I, I tell people nobody wants to win more than PJ Fleck, and I absolutely love that people say they were frustrated with this past season because that means we have expectations. 
right? We have expectations. And, you know, four years ago, we're in the Outback Bowl. You know, then we're in the Guaranteed Rate Bowl. Then we're in the Pinstripe Bowl. And now we went to the Quick Lane Bowl. And, and I think PJ would be the first one to tell you nobody wants to go five and seven. We went five and seven. We had opportunities this year. Uh, they didn't all go our way. But I, I know and 100% believe that PJ will have this program competing every game. And that's going to give us chances to do special things. And so, again, I'm just really grateful for his leadership. But, again, I remind people nobody wants to win more than him. And, and again, it's my job as the athletic director to support him, our student-athletes, our programs, that we can accomplish the goals we have. And those goals haven't changed. We want to compete for championships. The relationship you two have, the synergy, as good as ever. Like, am I out of bounds suggesting as long as you're the athletic director here, P.J. Fleck can be the football coach as long as he wants. Uh, uh, I tell people we're the odd couple. Uh, We cannot be. I mean, he's rah, 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 a lot of energy, a lot of excitement. I I tell people he's old-fashioned values, packaged high def. He knows how to relate to those kids he's recruiting. But when you peel it all back, he's about loyalty, integrity, doing things the right way. And and I'm more quiet, reserved, as you know. Uh, A beige wall might be a way some people describe (laughs) me, uh, which I'm okay with. But but again... um, He and I are incredibly close, and I feel really, really fortunate that I have the opportunity to work with him every day and all of our coaches at Minnesota. He has 100% of somebody who I have a lot of respect for and how he does things. I can't keep track of the coordinators coming and going. Is that frustrating from your standpoint? That, And I get it from Joe Rossi's standpoint. It may not be all about the dollars, but he is getting paid more money in East Lansing. And I've heard good things about Heatherman, by the way. So I think, all things considered, really good D.C. hire coming from Rutgers. But... I just I can't keep track. Sharaka comes back, then he leaves, and Joe Rossi now leaves. Is that frustrating from your standpoint? Uh, not frustrating. You know, I, I think you know PJ's talked a lot about continuity and the importance of continuity, and and. You know, he said that day one when he was hired. And, and, and again, you look at Iowa and success they've had, you know, with Coach Ferentz being there all those years. You know, I think he's, what, 25 or 26 years at Iowa or whatever and, and the success they've had. And so they've had many coaching changes, too, along the way, right? And so I think that's just part of college athletics. You are going to go through different coaches. Um, we're all about people having opportunities to grow and develop. And, and, again, grateful for Coach Ross and what he did for our program, grateful for Coach Schrock and what he did for our program. Super excited about, about Corey, who's coming in from Rutgers, who's our new defensive coordinator, excited about Bob, our new special teams uh, coordinator coming in from Syracuse. So I think PJ's made some really, really good hires. And, you know, I, I think people sometimes are caught off guard. I think PJ's going into year eight next year. You know, if you remember when we hired him and we had success, people thought he'd be gone in four minutes. Well, he loves it here, you know, and, and he's committed here. I'm committed here. So, again, I think that sustainability with the head coach, with the athletic director, and some of the other positions in our department go a long way in helping us to build that long-term success. In terms of growth and development, Men's basketball, right? I mean, that right there. I mean, think about where the Gophers were. You guys were two years ago, last year. Now Ben has a full roster. Hey, guess what? Full roster, win some games. Yeah, you know, I I am so excited for Ben because uh, he has not changed from day one. And you all knew Ben when he was a student athlete from his time here. And then he goes on the road, you know, and grows up as an assistant coach and he gets his first head coaching opportunity here. And I'm so excited for Ben, for Jason, Marcus, and, and Dave Thorson on that staff because those guys have worked so hard. They do it the right way. Ben has such great, great pride being the head coach here. And, and you've heard me talk about this before, Doogie. Minnesota is not a transitional school. Uh, this is a destination. I want coaches who want to be here. This is their dream job. This is what they want to be. This is what they want to do. Ben embodies that, and it's so great to see the success he's having. It's great to see the success that Coach Plitzwhite's having on the women's basketball side, the start we're off to there, and the great success they're having. So it's really excited for Ben and for Dawn and the success both of our programs are having right now. The plan that Ben laid out when he accepted the job, I mean, it was a multi-year plan. So 
Like, are you seeing some of that coming to fruition now? Like, is the idea that they can see this thing through, that there is no sort of expectation for the rest of this season to guarantee a fourth year? Yeah, well, we, we talk about all the time. You know, when, when we hired Ben, um, you know, he made it very clear. I think we had one student athlete, Isaiah, return from the previous staff. So he had a complete rebuild, brought in some transfers. Year two, we knew we were going to get younger. We were much younger, right, with these young Minnesota kids mm -hmm. on our team. Well, now they're sophomores. He did a great job getting some uh, kids that come in through the transfer portal. You know, Mike from Pepperdine, uh, Hawkins. You know, we brought in some new kids who've been great, great players. Darson Garcia came back home, which has been a huge lift for us. Parker Fox has done a great job. So he's done a great job with the recruits, with the transfer portal, and building this roster. And, and again, everything, you know, you asked me about PJ and, and how close we are. Um, close with Ben because everything they said day one is what they're doing. And I respect people who come in with a plan. They outline what they're going to do. That way you're not caught off guard. And, and trust me, I said about Pete, nobody wants to win more than Ben Johnson. I promise you that. In the last two years, very, very hard on him. So it's so cool to see some of the success. And we have a great opportunity this weekend down at Indiana before we come home next week against Iowa and have some opportunities in front of us. But again, excited for Ben and the way he's doing it. I mean, I want to see the barn packed like the picture behind you again, right? We, that's starting. We, we would love people to get back. You know, Ben, I, I was really proud of Ben after we had that great win against Maryland. And, and, and I think people take for granted we came out really flat and really slow against Maryland. I think we were down 12 points, uh, you know, down at halftime. We come out, we have that 14-0 run. Parker came in the game, gave us some, some nice energy, some nice juice, and we get a nice win, an ugly win, right? And, and I think that shows improvement when we didn't play our best and we got a great win against a good Maryland team. I think we had lost 10 in a row to them, that type of stuff. But Ben talked about in the post-game press conference how grateful he was for the fans that were there because the building wasn't full, but it was our biggest crowd of the year, and it was our loudest crowd of the year. And I hope our fans understand when you're there, you make a difference. Those kids feed off of that. Ben feeds off of that. And I hope people come out for the Iowa game. That's our next home game. Uh, they've been coming out for our women's basketball program, which is great. But there's no doubt we would love to see Williams Arena back to Williams Arena with great crowds over my shoulder. I mean, even Wisconsin in like 13 days. I think it's Tuesday the 23rd. Yep. You're right. Iowa, Wisconsin. Yep. Right? These big rivals. Two huge games. Hopefully you guys are doing well in terms of advanced ticket sales. Yep, no doubt. And, and again, Wisconsin playing really, really good right now. I had a chance to watch them the other night uh, in, in their game. They're playing really well. I think they're ranked 14th or 15th in the country right now. So again, another great opportunity for our program to compete against a really good Wisconsin team. On Dawn. She seems like a rock star. I mean, I heard that from so many high school coaches, <clears throat> AAU coaches when you made the hire. Now I'm seeing it. Like, I get it. Like, she can really coach. She, you know, Dawn, um, she might be the most intentional person I've ever been around. Like, everything she does is intentional. And it was amazing when, uh, you know, when we, get, when we were able to hire her and we got Dawn here and to spend time with her, she was kind of going through the offseason and building the roster. And, and I would be remiss if I didn't think our student athletes on the women's basketball team, you know, from Mara, Mallory, Sophia, um, uh, Amaya, Ania, that group that stuck around, that stayed part of our program. Because if you remember, they all said right away they were staying before we hired a new coach. And when we hired Dawn, I knew it was going to be, you know, almost a match made in heaven because how Dawn thinks, how she coaches, how she leads will be a perfect fit for those kids and their development. And I think you're starting to see their development. They're getting better. A huge win against Michigan last night. I think the first time since 2014 we've won at Michigan. 2018. Or 2018. Yeah, 2018. But, but a big time win yeah. for us. 
and, and you know, Grace, who came in as a freshman and done a wonderful job. So, again, just really excited for Dawn and, and her staff. They do such a great, great job. And, again, incredibly intentional person. So not surprised by her success, uh, maybe faster than we thought. But it's great that people are talking about Minnesota women's basketball and Minnesota men's basketball. Uh, it's awesome that people are talking about us. I mean, did you know that she was this intentional? Like, what do you now know about Dawn that you didn't know when you hired her? Well, you know, I, you don't know. You know, Doogie, it's very interesting. I, I, I apologize. I think I told you a story before. But uh, with, with being on the men's basketball committee, um, you know, I'm crushed in March. And, and, and when we You're had. Still on the committee? Yeah, still on the committee, okay. yep. And, and through what, uh, a year or two? Uh, I've got three more years on the committee. Okay. Um, when, when we were going through that transition, I remember being in Indianapolis during selection week, and I'm watching West Virginia women's basketball games. And the other 11 committee members are like, why are we watching West Virginia women's basketball games? And I said, I'm just curious, right? And then. I went to the first round in Des Moines uh, of the NCAA men's basketball tournament, and I'm watching West Virginia play Arizona in the NCAA women's basketball tournament in the first round because I wanted to watch Dawn on the sidelines, see her demeanor and so forth. And obviously we'd talk to her and spend some time with her. Uh, but when she got here, um, when you talk with her, she has a plan. She's very, very intentional. That came through when we were interviewing her, and it definitely has come through now that she's here every day. And again, just a big fan of her and the way she operates. You said you watched Wisconsin the other day. Should I make any insinuation about great guard? I'm, I'm, I'm joking. Yeah. Uh, Keegan Cook, his yeah. first year. Yes. You know, Keegan, uh, first off, uh, when you replace a legend, that's not easy. And obviously Hugh McCutcheon, who's still part of our program, spends a lot of time with our student athletes, our coaches, and with me. So grateful that Hugh's still here. But, you know, Keegan, when he walked in here, the expectations are sky high. We have, you know, we have one of the top 10 volleyball programs in the country. And, and you know, with the new transfer portal and how things have changed with NIL, some of those things, you know, I think Keegan battled. I think we finished 17 and 14, got to the second round of the... Uh, yeah, we lost some players, though, right? Yeah, I mean, Booth leaves, Lennis leaves. Yeah, we, we lost a few players, but... Again, that's going to happen anytime you have a coaching transition. But I feel really good about the recruits he's brought in. Um, the uh, Pedro, we just announced a new assistant coach that we hired today, who's with our staff before. So we're excited about Pedro coming in. But again, I think Keegan, again at Washington, eight years, eight trips to the NCAA tournament. I think four Pac-12 championships, a Final Four appearance. I think two or three Elite Eight appearances. He knows what he's doing. He's going to be fine. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. But just the optics, like then Landfair leaves, right? So you yep. see Booth leave, you see Wenis leave, and now Landfair leaves. Yeah. The optics don't look great, but I'm with you. Keegan's body of work, I think just let's give him some time. Yep, exactly. And, and again, uh, we talked earlier, that's just college athletics is under seismic changes is now. You know, kids have the opportunity to leave. And, and again, we don't fault those kids. I mean, we, we, wanna, we want student athletes. I, I have a chance if I'm on campus and they bring in recruits, I try to meet with the recruits and I tell every one of them, you know, our goal is to do everything we can to give you a great experience. And if it's not working here, we'll support you and help you out any way we can. And that's just how college athletics is now, right? I mean, kids can jump in the portal anytime they want and we wish them nothing but success, but we've got to focus on what we're doing, what Minnesota's going to do long-term. And again, very excited about Keegan and what he's doing with our volleyball program. How much will this year be a celebration of John Anderson? So I believe it's year 50. Like if you include player, yeah. well, like student manager, assistant coach, head coach. So I think it's 43 years or 44 as head coach, but I believe it's 50 years total. Nice round number. How much will this year be a celebration of John as last year? Well, you, you know, um, you've heard me say low ego, high output, you know, definition of humility. We, we talk about that all the time here. Uh, he's the definition of that. And, and when John made the decision that he, this would be his final season. He made it very clear to me and to our student athletes, it's not about me. 
being John Anderson. I want this to be about our program, our team. I mean, he always puts that program first, and I have a lot of respect for John, but there's no doubt this is going to be a special year for John, and I think as Minnesota, we have to celebrate John Anderson, what he has done throughout the years at this program as a student athlete and then leading our program, the all-time winningest Big Ten baseball coach. I mean, he's done so many special things, and I hope our fans come out and support us this year. You know, not being able to play in U.S. Bank Stadium this fall, we're going to open up on the road. I think the first seven or eight weekends we're on the road, but when we get back into Siebert Field. I hope people come out and support him uh, because he deserves that recognition. But again, it's going to be a big, big hole in our department without John Anderson. Big, big piece of our program. It's ridiculous, the U.S. Bank Stadium stuff. Like, did you try to fight that in any way? Yeah, we're having conversations with them. You know, it, it's it's uh, frustrating because, you know, I wasn't here when the stadium was built, but it's the People Stadium, mm-hmm. right? And, and there's statutes that talk about how amateur baseball can be a part of that. And the fact that we can't play in there this year is frustrating. We're obviously trying to work with them to make sure that this doesn't happen in the future. Uh, Coach Anderson's heavily involved. Uh, our campus leadership's heavily involved in that. So hopefully we get a resolution to make sure we can play baseball uh, in U.S. Bank Stadium moving forward. I wish you were two more, and then Chris might have a question. I'll yeah. even too. But traits for the next baseball coach, are you already – undergoing that process? Yeah, well, well, Peyton Owens, who uh, is another one of our senior associate athletic director, Peyton oversees our baseball program, so uh, we, have, we have received great interest in the job. You know, people have already started to reach out to us. Uh, I'll work closely with Peyton on that search. Uh, we've started to put together a list of, of candidates that we want to look at. Obviously, because of the timing, uh, we've got to let people get through their season and do those type of things. And as you know, I have a, I try to move very quickly. Um, uh, have not used a search firm. We will not use a search firm. We'll, I, I just believe we need to do it ourselves. So as we work our way through the baseball season, we'll follow teams pro- very closely. We'll follow programs closely. And then once the season starts to wind down, we'll move very quickly and get a new coach here that will lead our baseball program. Search firms like you, though, right? Like the USC job opens, right? Search firm reaches out to you. Uh, they, well, you know, it's just part of our world, right? I mean, uh, and again. Is it flattering, though? Uh, well, well, I think it's a credit to uh, to our student athletes, our coaches, and the staff I work with. You know, we've had success at Minnesota uh, because we have great people. We have really, really good people. And uh, again, I'm very humbled to be here. As, as you said, this is my eighth year. Uh, I grew up in Iowa. The Midwest is home. Uh, we're very proud to represent Minnesota. But uh, you're going to be contacted. And, and I think. Given all the changing landscape, I think I'm the third or fourth longest tenure AD in the Big Ten. Um, I've got some experience, and I think that's going to catch people's attention, but uh, we still have a lot of work to do at Minnesota. You're, what, 55 now? Celebrated a birthday recently? 55. Yeah? Yep. You feel 55? Uh, I'm, I'm starting to, to be honest with you. <laughs> no, it's, uh, yeah, no, it, it's, uh, my, my wife made me take an eight-hour online driving course to get the discount for insurance. That made me feel really old, to be honest <laughs> with you, Doogie. <laughs> I mean, I'm just thinking of 55. This is probably it. We've talked about this. I yeah. just think if the Kentucky job ever opened, I just wonder if that might pull you that direction. But I'm thinking of 55 now, Mark. Like, this might be it. Uh, this is home. You know, we, we have, as you know, family's incredibly important to me. And, and if you remember, I got very emotional when I was hired as the athletic director here at Minnesota because it gave me an opportunity to be close to my mom, who uh, who's three hours away down in Iowa. I can see her a lot. I've got a sister in Rochester. My wife's got family in, in Chicago. I've got more family down in Iowa. Uh, this is our kids' home. You know, our, our kids, uh, two of them have graduated from Crete, and our daughter Gracie's graduated from Minnesota. Our son Benjamin, you know, is a junior in high school right now at Crete. Nicholas, uh, this is home for us, and, and again, we feel really, really good here, and and I and I absolutely love uh, the alignment we have. You know, President Edinger, it's kind of strange. I'm on my third president, getting ready to have my fourth president when we name a new president. But I think the alignment between the president's office, between the border regions and athletic department, is very strong, and that makes it very attractive to me. 
Anything we didn't hit on, Mark, that's important for people to know? DingyTownAthletes.com. Please go there. <laughs> Chris? I'm good. I mean, we didn't touch on hockey, but yeah. like even Mariucci, it's alive. Like, it wasn't that long ago. I can remember going to a Michigan game. I don't know what year it was. I can't remember. COVID, pre, post, I don't know. But not that long ago, there were seats galore empty. Now, it's hard to get a seat at Mariucci. Well, again, Bob, you know, when I talk about Bob Mosco, if, if you would have been sitting with me when we interviewed Bob Mosco, he talked about his first goal, getting people back. How do we get people back in the program, supporting the program? How do we get the alums back? How do we get people engaged? Uh, and we've won, and people have gotten engaged. And, and again, it's awesome to see. I remember being down in, in Tampa, St. Pete last year for the, for the Frozen Four, and, and friends sending me pictures of the, of the bar scene here in the restaurants, how they're all packed, people are going bonkers, and it's great to see. So we're just really, really grateful for the support of our fans. And, and again, Bob has done such a great, great job of that program, back-to-back final or Frozen Fours. Obviously, this year in St. Paul, mm-hmm. uh, it'd be great to get there, but obviously there's a lot of work in front of us as we finish the second half of the Big Ten schedule. But again, Bob's been a great, great addition to our program. We'll find out in about two-ish months what Populous says about whether to renovate Williams Arena or tear it down. I was remiss in not asking Mark specifically about Williams Arena. I'm sure I'll catch up with Mark again in the near future. If so, if Populous says, hey, tear it down, where would the money come from to build a new arena? So many questions. A long way to go. Heck, they've talked about different ways to renovate Williams Arena for a really long time. Elevate the fan experience, but the fact they hired Populous to do some stuff, to give some feedback, that certainly is noteworthy. We wrap up this pod getting to know new Twins reliever Hobie Harris. Hobie, congratulations. Thank you for doing this. Before we get to specifics on the Twins, why the Twins make sense from your standpoint, let's start with this. Just how much of a sense of relief is there knowing, I mean, we're about a month away. I mean, we're sitting here in mid-January, so now you know you have the comfort of knowing, like in one month, you'll be in Fort Myers. What is that sense of relief like that you know that you have a team? Oh, it's definitely a big weight off my shoulder. Uh, looking at these past two off-seasons, I was signed with whichever team uh, two years ago, the Brewers, and last year, the Nationals, within the first or second day of free agency. So even going into the holiday seasons, I was pretty set on where I would go, and in that uh that sense of relief set in a little bit earlier uh, this year, obviously, you know, getting through the new year, getting through the holiday season, kind of having that question up in the air, uh, being able to ink a deal with the twins uh, is definitely a big, big relief, big weight off the shoulders. And now I can look forward to getting to work when we get to Fort Myers. What was the free agency process like? It was a little different this year. Um, obviously looking at each minor league affiliate, having to knock down 15 roster spots, uh, some big name free agents that are still on the market right now. Uh, you know, it was a little bit slower than normal. Uh, my agent up front said, he, he kind of let me know it may not be as quick as it had been in the past. Uh, and we kind of fielded interest from teams around the holiday season. And I was told that it would be probably after the new year until we inked the deal. Um, and we had a couple teams kind of going back and forth with us. And then I threw a bullpen middle of last week, sent the data to my agent and, he within about 15 minutes of twins that offered us. And I thought, you know, that's, it's good that they have faith in where I'm at right now. It's exciting that obviously that opportunity presented itself. And now again, just looking forward to getting to work with them. Well, what clicked so well in that bullpen then? Uh, I think, you know, the big thing was my velos climbing back up uh, along with the the vertical break on my fastball and just being able to uh, see that, 
a couple mechanical changes I've made this offseason are already showing us uh, that we're trending in the right direction with those with those analytics. Uh, I think once I get to full speed and I'm starting to throw live ABs and and kind of take those into camp, uh, you know, these these mechanical adjustments I've made should help us get back up in the upper 90s where I was before and where I want to get back to. So, Well, Hobie, specifically, like, okay, mechanical changes. Can you go into a little bit of depth on, on what you're trying to change? Absolutely, yeah. So last year, uh, past two years, actually, I've, my usage with my split finger has gone a lot higher. Uh, I, I got a lot of swings and misses. I've always had success against lefties, started throwing it more against right-handed hitters. And when I was with the Brewers in Nashville, they they started wanting me to up that usage. So I started throwing it more and more. And although that pitch got a lot better, uh, my upper body became a little bit disconnected from my lower half. I started becoming a lot more pull heavy with my front side. And that caused my arm to drag a little bit. So I was losing a little bit of that velocity. So this year, my big focus is for staying more stacked with my upper half, keeping my glove side closed a little bit longer. And then as I get the foot strike, making sure I stay directional versus letting that glove side pull me towards first base. And pairing those with just the strength training and things like that that I've been doing, I've seen uh, the velocity creeping back up to where it was in the past. So those things are, are already in motion. I'm hoping they continue to trend upwards. What is that velo? So when you're clicking, what's your velo at? Uh, right now or during the season? Well, yeah, middle of the season. Yeah, definitely not in mid-January. Come sure. April, May, uh, June, July. So my best season from a velocity perspective was in 21 when I was in Buffalo. I was still with the Blue Jays. And around the June, actually, I remember June 23rd, it was on my birthday. We were playing in Syracuse and I was up to 100. But I would, I think my average deal that year was in the 97 range. So I'd probably, I ranged between 96 and 99 for the most part. Um, and then last year it was more 93, 95. So being able to make some of these mechanical adjustments, kind of hammer them early in the off season so I can uh, build that foundation and obviously have the knowledge that I, I know where I was before is, is what we're working to get back to. I mean, does it just blow you away that, I mean, so many relievers now are throwing 96 to 99. It seems like there are four or five guys in every bullpen, if not more. That's why I Absolutely. asked specifically what your velo is at, because it seems like sure. to have a crack in the bigs, to sustain success in the bigs, you need to have that upper 90s velo. Absolutely. And now it's it's kind of a, you know, that's just one of the pieces that works in your favor, right? Because everybody you look at across the big leagues has something that makes them elite. And they pair something that makes them elite with being able to throw the ball really hard as well. So now it's kind of everybody's got two things. On top of the velo, you got something else. But uh, I mean, you look at the game 10 or 15 years ago and the average fastball was, what, 91 or 92 miles an hour. Now you're looking at it, especially from a bullpen perspective, you got guys throwing 97, 98, 99 on the regular. So it's it's definitely a lot different. But being able to have access to the information and the data, which keeps me informed as to where I'm at, uh, helps me kind of stay in tune with where I want to be. And obviously, I know where I need to be to continue to stay competitive. OK, so you had options. Why the Twins? Why do the Twins make the most sense for you? Man, there are a couple of reasons. Number one, this is my third free agency. And all three years I have navigated free agency, the Twins have expressed great interest. And, um, you know, that shows me that even the years that I've done well, and then last year uh, I, I found some success in the big leagues, and then I was kind of up and down when I was in AAA to know that they still have that same interest in me. Uh, shows me that it wasn't fair weathered and it wasn't just because I had one good year. Uh, so that gives me a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of mental fortitude knowing these guys have been on me since day one and they they want me to be in that clubhouse, which is awesome. And then secondly, just 
the group of guys that they have over there. I know the bullpen is young. I know they have, uh, they've got room to grow and they have room for me to, you know, potentially I throw well, like I did in camp last year, I start the season strong. I could, I could kind of put myself as a, as a staple in that bullpen. And that's obviously a long-term goal of mine. So just the interest they have paired with the opportunity they presented me, it was a no brainer. Are you comfortable, Hobie, if it comes down to a situation where they ask you to start at AAA, which is five miles down the highway? I mean, you'd be here in the Twin Cities, you know, yeah. heck, if they need you. I mean, you could get a phone call at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, make the drive over from St. Paul to Minneapolis. But just sure. based on not being on the 40-man, you know, roster, you know, makeup and all that, are you okay if they say, okay, Hobie, we really like you, but we want you to start in St. Paul and we'll give you an opportunity hopefully sometime in April or May or soon thereafter? Absolutely. I mean, for me, I know I'm 30 years old. I've been in this game a long time. And I know that there are some things that are out of my control. I know if I show up to camp in shape, if I show up to camp with my arm ready to go, and if I show up to camp ready to compete and fill up the strike zone, at the end of the day, all I'm going to try to do is put myself in the best position for them to have to make a decision. And if that decision out of camp means that I start in St. Paul, then again, I'm going to attack each day with that same mentality of, I've got a job to do, and it's to go build the strike zone and get guys out. And whether it's in the AAA level or the big league level, I'm going to pride myself on taking care of that each and every day. And, you know, the the dominoes from there will kind of fall where they may. But all I'm going to try to take care of is making sure I'm put in a position where they need to make a decision and hopefully kind of force the hand a little bit. Is your confidence, it's safe to say, Hobie, your confidence is at probably an all-time high based on getting to the big leagues last year? It's It definitely helps my confidence, absolutely. I know – when I was pitching well in AAA in 21 and then the entire year, probably my best statistical year in Nashville in 22, I felt like it got to a point where I kept looking over my shoulder thinking, all right, what else do you want me to do? What else do I have to do? You know, do I have to strike out the side every time I go out there, sit 98 miles an hour to even get a chance? And at the back end of that season, I kind of had an epiphany of just, again, what, what I just mentioned in the last comment was I can't control the way that they run things. I can't control the decisions that they make. So all I can do is go out, make sure I'm prepared, go out, take care of my business, and then let let the kids fall where they may. So now that I have achieved that goal uh, and I got to the big leagues last year and was was up there for a, a decent amount of time, you know, it's definitely a confidence boost for me because I don't feel like I still have that looming over my head. Uh, and also confidence in the sense that I was up there, I competed, and I was able to get guys out just like I was in the in the minor leagues. So my confidence is definitely high. Being in the big leagues helps, and now, again, it's just – take it one day at a time and, and work my way back up there. What was your welcome to the big leagues moment? Oh, goodness. Um, I, I can name a couple. Number one, I debuted on on uh, April 1st last year. It was the second game of the season against the Atlanta Braves. And I was coming in. We were behind. I was coming in in the ninth inning. And as I was walking down the ramp to get to the field, I wanted to make sure I could take it all in. So I got to the gate, and before I even stepped on the warning track, I took a deep breath and just kind of looked up, and they started playing my walk-up song, and being able to see these people here watch a baseball game, being able to see me perform at this level. I grew up as a Texas Rangers fan going to the Rangers games in Arlington, and, you know, you see these guys running out, and they're like, they're gods, right? They're, they were idols to us because all we ever wanted to do is play at the big league level. So for me to be able to look up and now see it from that perspective, it was definitely a, definitely a dream come true. And then running out there and warming up, and I knew exactly where the family section was. So I had a bunch of family there. 
my wife, my parents, my brother and sister looking at me. And it was it was cool for me because I felt pride not only in myself, but for my family and knowing that we made it because I couldn't have done it without them. Uh, and then coming off the field and Dave Martinez giving me a big hug and pitching coach and all the, the guys in the dugout. like, man, I did it. And I think one of my coolest moments, I had a bit of a mentor last year in the locker room, a uh, guy named Chad Cool, who spent a lot of time with Pittsburgh. Um, he kind of took me under his wing in spring training. And once I got off the field after the, the top of the ninth inning and I kind of caught my breath, got settled down, he came up and put his arm around me and he pointed up to the top of the stand and kind of made like a circular motion. He said, I want you to know you could take everybody that's ever played in the big leagues and they would comfortably fit in this stadium right now. And for me, that was a like, I'm one of 22,000 people to ever do this. And that was, so to wrap everything up, that was probably the biggest, dude, I made it. Like I made it to the big leagues. So that was pretty cool. That is really, really cool. Was there ever any doubt, Hobie, along the way? Like, did you ever doubt, okay, I have this dream, but the dream, it's just not going to happen. Maybe it was when you were in Nashville, you just laid out, but. Was there ever any doubt that your dream just wouldn't come a reality? I can honestly say there was never a doubt for me. There was never a moment where I sat back and thought, I am not, it's not going to happen. There were times where I questioned the why. And when I say the why, the why the things around me were happening. Why was this guy getting the chance? Why was what I was doing not good enough? Why was the situation I was put in not leading me to that ultimate goal of achieving the big league. But as far as doubting getting there, had there ever been a doubt that arose in my mind, I probably wouldn't be playing anymore because I debuted a couple of months before I turned 30. Now you see a lot of guys that are debuting at 21, 22, 23. So I spent parts of eight years in the minor league. Uh, I definitely wouldn't have put myself through all of that had I doubted that it would happen. So never doubt do I have this right? You struck out the first batter you faced? That's correct. I mean, how cool is that? Well, setting the bar pretty high, I guess. You know, it's it was surreal. Uh, you know, Marcelo Zuna, former all-star, big, powerful bat, right-handed guy, gets up there, and he's a, he's a strong presence in the box. And, you know, going through spring training and facing a lot of these big-name guys is one thing, but now we're doing it at the big league level during the regular season stadiums a lot bigger than it is uh, when we were down in Palm beach and, you know, he steps in the box and again, that was another one of those, I made it moments, but got him to a, uh, got him to a two, two count. And I pulled the heater a little bit. So it was a little bit more outside than I wanted to be, but I was able to execute it above the zone knowing that he kind of had a spot up there. He wanted to chase because he was trying to put the ball in the air. And, you know, he chased it, got the swing and miss. And as I did that little circle around the mound, that was uh, definitely a, a pretty strong feeling for me emotionally. That was cool. So do I have this right, Hobie? You pitched at Target Field last yes. April? That is correct. What do you remember about that? I remember it was cold. <laughs> uh, no, I remember coming in. It would have been, I, I think, the seventh inning. Don't hold me through that, but I think it was the seventh inning. And... I remember we had another one of our bullpen guys scheduled to come in. Uh, we ended up extending the lead by another three or four runs, and it was a quick, hey, Hobie, you're in the game. So I had to get loose, and I probably threw four or five pitches in the bullpen before I, I went out to the field. And, again, I'm stripping my layers or my big coat and then my 
hoodie and I'm making sure that I'm all ready to be warm enough to even start warming up. And I get out there and uh, the one guy I remember facing was Joey Gallo, just because, again, being a Rangers guy growing up, I remember he had, you know, had some pretty big homers in, in Arlington and the dude had some power. So I wanted to make sure I kept the ball down. I stayed away from him. And I think I ended up getting him to fly out, which is cool. But uh, no, I remember the atmosphere there was cool. The, the layout of the stadium is really neat. And it seems like the fan base for Minnesota for the Twins is, is strong. And again, the team is, is one that's on the up and up and they've got a lot of young talent. So for me, it was as an opposing player, looking at the, the loyalty that that fan base has, especially when it was 30 degrees outside, it's pretty cool to see because that's a that's a, a fan base that can it's going to be easier to perform in front of. One of those talented younger type players is outfielder Trevor Larnick. I think he got you. I think he hit a home run off of you. I believe it was a double. If was it I, a double? Okay. I, I think it was off the wall, but yes, I believe it was okay. a double. Uh, yeah, I think it was a double that banged me for one or two runs. But yeah, like you said, strong. Strong bat, dude. Just you know, took advantage of one. I kind of hung over the middle of the plate, and at that level, you got to make sure you execute your pitches. Otherwise, the guys will make you pay for it. So that was definitely one that I wish I could have back. But you know, at the end of the day, it's baseball, so we, you know, learn from it, and move on. What's the full scouting report on you, Hobie? So if you were to write a full scouting report on yourself, or at least semi-detailed here, what what is in that scouting report? Oh, I'm gonna use my fastball at the top of the zone. Uh, I'm gonna run my splitter off of it, try to tunnel everything down the middle. I'll throw a wrinkle with a cutter in there just because I can use it to either get off the barrel of a right-handed hitter, get into the hands of a lefty, or if I have a guy that's pretty aggressive early and I think he's sitting fastball, I can just get him to chase and steal a strike. Uh, but for the most part, if I feel like everything's in sync and everything's working, I'm going to try to work the upper nines up in the zone. And then I'm going to, when I get ahead in the count, I'm going to stay strong with my splitter. And then if it's one of those days where my splitter can land in any count, I can work backwards. Uh, but for the most part, you know, those two pitches are going to be a lot of what you're getting from me. And then working by the end of last year, I was actually working the cutter to turn into a little bit more of a slider type action, a little bit more horizontal movement to it. Uh, and in some of these early bullpens I've thrown down here, I've, I've had good feel for that in the strike zone as well. So I'm anxious to see what that looks like going into camp. Maybe I can add it as a, you know, a third weapon rather than just a, a pitch I sprinkle in there. But uh fastball twitter cutter gonna try to fill up the zone as much as i can you know one of my big thoughts this year is minimize trying to nitpick around the zone make sure i can set up middle work up work down and then from there you know see what happens but i want to see i want to see how challenging i can be for guys to get how much of a relationship hobie do you have with jake irvin who's from here in the twin cities oh him and i have a great relationship i remember he you know we we got close in camp and then he actually sat next to me on his first big league flight when we were going to, I believe we were playing San Francisco. Uh, and, you know, not that I had too much experience with it, but I was up there for a month or so before he got up. So I was just being able to see that look in his eyes of, you know, I made it, we're on this flight, we're going for his, what ended up being his first big league win in San Francisco. Uh, you know, hardworking kid, really, really positive dude, easy to root for. And, uh, you know, very talented on the mound as well. So overall, just a, a phenomenal guy, and I'm a big fan of Jake. Yeah, I mean, you'll have to pick his brand. I mean, he's one of those rare guys that actually lives here in the winter. Like, you would yeah. think, okay, you're from here, that's fine, but you would escape, yeah. right? Florida, wherever, Texas, right? Jake actually yeah. spends the winter. He likes working with a local coach, right? So he gets his work in indoors. 
He loves mm-hmm. living here. He lives in downtown Minneapolis. He loves living here in the winter. So, you know, you can pick his brain on all things Twin Cities. Yeah, I think uh, that's going to help me out as far as, you know, good places to go eat, good places to live, things like that. I also think that he's got a a little bit of a demon in him for loving to live where it's cold. But, you know, that, I won't hold it against him. Hobie, what else is important to know as we as we tell your story here with, with the signing with the Twins? Oh, uh, you know, you're you're getting a guy who you're going to get the same guy every day. I'm going to come to work. I'm going to be ready to to fight for my spot. Again, I kind of gave you an overview of how I pit. Um, and I'll, I'm going to be incredibly intense on the field. I'm going to be, I have this look in my eye if I want to just dominate everybody that steps in the box. And I couldn't be polar opposite, more polar opposite when I'm off the field. I'm, you know, high energy, like to have a lot of fun, like to joke around. I like to golf on the off days. And, you know, outside of that, it's kind of what you see is what you get with me. So on the field, a lot of intensity off the field, just like to joke around and have a good time. I'll leave you with this. What, what advice would you give? I've got a 12-year-old who actually, I asked this because it's in the moment. Earlier today, I took mm-hmm. him for, for a tryout for a spring team, one of the club teams here in town, and they had him throw a 30-pitch bullpen session. And he was a little rusty. I mean, we've thrown, but at 12, I don't want him overdoing it, right? So, like, right. you know, fall season ended mid-October. You know, we shut it down for a while. We've played catch here and there, but he really hasn't thrown off a mound going right. back to, heck, early October. So, you know, after a finish, he's like, I think I did okay, but – you know, felt a little rusty, but like he's got this strong passion for the game, not just pitching right at 12. He's doing everything right. He can play any position. He just loves the game, even though it's a game full of failure, but he loves it. Right. And so I want to fuel his passion, but whether it's my son or or other kids who have the same dreams that you had, what would, what would be your advice for them? Uh, A couple of points. Number one, you got to have a short memory in this game, because like you touched on, it's a game of failure. I mean, you look at these guys in the big leagues that are batting 300 and they're amongst the best. That means seven out of 10 times they're not performing their job, right? And in just about any other facet of life, if you were to go along those standards, you would be considered probably failing whatever you're trying to do. But in the game of baseball, failure is such a prominent part of it. You have to learn to learn from it and then let it go because the more that you hold on to the things that you did wrong or the things, the times that you didn't succeed, you're going to take it into those next at bats, those next, you know, the next pitches you throw in the next guy. And if you're caught up on what already happened, you're not going to be able to be in the moment. And then secondly, you also touched on just keep the passion for the game. Baseball is such a beautiful sport. Um, you know, everybody says it's hard not to be romantic about baseball. So every time I step on the field, I just have such an overwhelming gratitude for the ability. I get the opportunity I, I get and the ability I have to play this game. Um and with each passing year, as I get older, and now I'm 30 years old, going to be 31 in June, I'm still getting to live the dream I had when I was three years old. So being able to have a short memory and then just being able to keep that passion for the game, those are probably the two biggest biggest pieces of advice I could give. Hobie, this was fun. Pleasure to make your acquaintance. I <laughs> sincerely apologize if you're a Cowboys fan. I don't know if you're a Cowboys fan down there in uh, in the Dallas area. So sincere apologies for that performance yesterday. But hey, you yeah. still have a couple Super Bowls that you can you can always fall back on. Well the last Super Bowl they won, I was two years old. So yeah, it's got a good point. I don't I don't remember it and it's really <laughs> not that it's not a very strong argument against Eagles fans who at least won one back in twenty seventeen. So at this point, you know, I'm 
if I'm being completely transparent with you, I turned the game off at halftime last night. I just, I was not in a good place. So <laughs> I don't blame you on this. You know, at, at this point, at least I can watch the NFL playoff as a casual football fan versus having to be completely over the top and locked into it. But, uh, you know, like we've been saying for going on 20 years now, I guess there's always next year. <laughs> well, for your sake, I guess go Tampa Bay. Yeah, well, Baker's a Texas guy, so I'll, I'll root for him. All right. Well, it'll be pleasure, and I'm sure we'll connect in person in the near future. Yeah, absolutely. I look forward to it. Thank you for your time. Okay. Things ramping up. Twins Fest this week, the Diamond Awards on Thursday night. Of course, the Joe Mauer News on Tuesday. Next thing you know, the calendar will flip to February. The Twins will be in Fort Myers. That Kobe told me he's heading down to Fort Myers like February 6th or 7th. So certainly things ramping up on the baseball front. Maybe they'll ramp up on the roster building front. Always appreciate you listening. This has been Scoop Podcast episode 427. Stay safe, stay sane.